0: Please open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Our passage for this morning, for the second week in a row, is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Again, that's 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. I'm absolutely fascinated by the nation of Israel. Uh, You've probably already picked this up before. I know I can talk about Israel a lot and uh, in many different contexts. There are ultimately many different reasons uh, for this fascination, many of which, of course, are rooted in what the Scripture reveals about this nation. There's their calling from God, for instance, and the role this calling is supposed to play in the unfolding history of mankind. There's the fact that this calling so closely resembles the the calling that Christians have received in Christ such that the Bible even encourages us to learn from their example. Even the result of this calling and the ultimate destiny that God describes for this nation, it's all incredibly fascinating. But of all the things that fascinate me about Israel, one of the things that fascinates me the most is their mere existence and preservation as a nation. If I could put it this way, Israel's continued existence as a nation today defies all logical explanation. It's simply unprecedented. Name for me one other people that not only managed to maintain their national identity while living in exile for almost 2,000 years, but one which, after this, managed to regain possession of their land, and this not through some military conquest of their own, but through the intervention of other nations. Simply unheard of. In fact, if someone were to ask me for one proof that the God of the Bible not only exists, but that He is the one true God, this is likely where I would point. I point to the nation of Israel. The Bible says that God promised to Abraham the land of Canaan. And that he gave Canaan his, as his possession because he had a special mission for Abraham's descendants to perform through that land. And lo and behold, that's what you're seeing play out before you in history with your, own very, your very own eyes. God not only preserved the nation through various conquest and inquisitions and straight-up genocide. But he even gave them their land back. I mean, how else do you explain all of this other than to say that this is the fulfillment of prophecy? It's a demonstration of the fact that God really has set apart this people for a particular purpose in fulfillment of what's been written in the Scriptures. Whenever I ponder this thought, one of the questions that I find myself asking is how how did God manage to pull all this off and of course I know the simple answer to that question is well because he's God right meaning it's absolutely impossible to thwart his purpose I think of Proverbs 21 1 for instance which says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord he turns it wherever he will that's the ultimate answer to this question Israel was preserved because God is in control. He's sovereign over all human affairs and so he's able to guide and direct history such that Israel survives. But I think there's more to this question as well. God, after all, is a God of means, meaning he intends to work through human instrumentation. We are not merely passive participants in the unfolding of His plans. Rather, He works out His purposes through our active engagement in His revealed will. Well, what I get curious about is what did Israel do to maintain this identity? In other words, God's sovereign preservation of Israel might explain what prevented the nations of the earth from destroying Israel, but it doesn't really provide the full explanation for how Israel managed to maintain their national identity while in exile. I mean, why didn't they just dissolve into the countries of their exile, like so many other nations have done before them? What was it that caused them to continue to identify as Jews, even without a national border, even without homeland? have to think there was something that they did to try to do that, that this didn't just happen by accident. So what was it? What did God tell this people to do that enabled them to say, to stay distinct and for so long even as they were surrounded by the nations of the earth? That's something that I'm incredibly interested in as a pastor. You see, just like Israel, we too as Christians have been called to live in the world without being of the world. Like Israel, we have been called to live differently so that the nations might learn something of the character of God through us. We're supposed to maintain our identity and lifestyle as Christians without being overcome by the nations that surround us. What I want to know is how does that work? How do I help my people do that? This is something I ponder as a pastor. And Israel seems to be able to provide the answer to this. I mean, they've already done this successfully. Even if at this point in history, they do so in their unbelief. So what can we learn from their example? And do you know what the answer is? At at least from what I've discovered in my own personal study. There are actually several different factors that play into Israel's survival and their maintaining of their distinct identity Uh, part of it for instance is Israel's suffering as any war veteran will tell you there's a unique kind of camaraderie that's formed with the people you suffer with that seems to be part of what forged this identity through the years through their suffering Israel was often forced to unite together against a common foe another answer though a related one is discipline Basically, God disciplined the nation until finally they started to realize that the pain of disobedience simply wasn't worth it. And so, as a people, they began to cling to his law. And this, in turn, forced them to live distinctly among the nations in which they were scattered. But do you know what I think the main answer to this question is? It's not just their suffering, it's not just the discipline they experienced, it's their memory. God not only set Israel apart as a unique nation, but then he built into the law mechanisms that would force Israel to remember who they are and what they've been called to. You see it in the holidays they celebrate, things like Passover, when Israel's parents retell the story of the nation's redemption to their children year after year. You see it in the commands that God gives Israel to speak constantly of the law, to bind them as signs on their hands and to write them on the doorposts doorposts of their uh, houses and their gates and to teach their children, quote, when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You see it even in God's explanations for Israel's failures when they did fail. For example, as the author of Judges tries to explain what happened to lead Israel into the cycle of oppression, repentance, and deliverance that we find in the book of Judges, he observes that Israel was faithful so long as the generation that saw God's works in the wilderness lived. But then, quote, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the works that he had done for Israel. The Scripture seems to show us that there's this direct correlation between one's ability to remember the past and their ability to remain faithful in the future. And this seems to be a major part of Israel's ability to remain distinct in the world. God built into their way of life not only an ability to remember what God has done, but even an ability to remember who they are. Of course, this is all incredibly relevant to us here in 1 Corinthians. Uh, We're currently in this series in 1 Corinthians, which I've entitled Christ in the World. It's a series in which we're asking how to live in the world without being of the world. Over the past several weeks, we've seen some very tangible examples of how this is supposed to be lived out. Uh, In chapter 5, for instance, Paul tells the Corinthians to separate from any so-called brother who is guilty of sexual immorality while at the same time continuing to engage with the sexually immoral of the world. In chapter 6, he tells them that they should settle their grievances internally instead of taking them before the secular courts. All in all, the idea seems to be that the Corinthians are supposed to function as a kind of Christian subculture, meaning like Israel, they're to function as a society within a society. How does that work? How is this going to happen? How are you going to maintain that kind of distinct identity while surrounded by people who are so different from you? And the answer is by remembering who they are. We saw this principle play out in this passage last week as Paul is rebuking the Corinthians for their failure to live as a distinct people. And as he rebukes them for the lawsuits that they're bringing against each other specifically, he says... Verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In such were some of you. But you are washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God." I explained last week that when Paul utters this phrase, "...in such were some of you," in verse 11, he is not saying that the Corinthians no longer struggle with the types of sins that he describes in verses 9 through 10. Quite the contrary. We saw in chapter 5, and we'll see again in the rest of chapter 6, that they most definitely did indeed struggle with sexual immorality. They were not only willing to approve of this man's sexual immorality in chapter five, but we'll see in next week's passage as well. they were active participants in their own kinds of sexual immorality also. We saw earlier in chapter six that they still struggled with greed. They did indeed still swindle. They were not willing, not only willing to steal, but they were willing to steal, from one another. In fact, it's this very thought in verse 8 that causes Paul to erupt in the way he does in verses 9 through 11. So it's pretty clear, this stuff is not squarely in the rearview mirror. So when Paul says, such were some of you, he's not saying, you don't wrestle with this stuff anymore. You've evolved past all of that. You've hit another level spiritually. Neither is he saying that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God as some kind of threat. As if they do still struggle with this stuff, and if they don't get their act together, then they'll be shut out of the kingdom of heaven. Now, so again, pretty clearly, he says, such were some of you. So he doesn't interpret this as some kind of present status that is somehow threatening the Corinthians' eternal destiny. No, he's recognizing That while they do still struggle with these things, that at the same time, this is no longer who they are. And the reason he's doing this is to actually exhort them to live up to what they have already become in Christ. In short, he's urging them to remember. He's urging them to remember who they are now, now that they're Christians and what God has done for them. And he's urging them to remember this because it's as they remember this that they'll know how to respond to all these various situations that they're facing. This seems to be the root of so many of the Corinthians' problems. They're writing to Paul, asking him to sort out all these questions that they've come up with. Right? They're confused. They don't know what to do. They don't understand the proper application of their faith. And really so much of this comes from the fact that they've forgotten who they are and what God has done in them. Because if they had remembered that, then they could have inferred many of the answers to these questions on their own. This is what Paul is implying when he says in verse 9, Or do you not realize that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The Corinthians should have already understood that sexual immorality and greed is entirely inconsistent with the kingdom of God. They should have already understood that Christ has redeemed them from these sins. Well, if they had only remembered and applied that concept, then they would have realized how this behavior that Paul is correcting is inconsistent with what they've become in Christ, and they could have corrected all of this on their own. So what have they become? What has God done in them? In short, who are they? This is a relevant question not only for the Corinthians, but for us as well. We too need to know how to navigate the world in a way that allows us to remain distinct from the world while engaging it at the same time. So this is an incredibly relevant question for us to ask as well. Who are we? What has God done in us? What have we become And how does this shape the way we interact with the world? In total, there are three actions or states that we need to remember in this passage. And I say that they're actions or states because there's a sense in which they're both. They describe something that's happened to the Christian, meaning they're describing something that's been done in or on behalf of the Christian. And yet, the result of these actions is that the Christian is, in some sense, transformed. They've been changed as a result of these actions. They've entered into a new state of being. And so it's really both. But we're going to keep our focus today on the result. Since the purpose of this section is really to remember who we are. Again, Paul says, such were some of you. This is about who we are now in Christ. So there are three states that Paul describes in this passage, three ways in which the Corinthians, and by extension, all Christians, have been transformed. These states are described in verse 11 when Paul says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. This is what's changed about the Christian. At one point in time, some of us were the things that are described in verses 9 through 10. But we are this way no longer since we've been, number one, washed, number two, sanctified, and number three, justified. These three conditions cancel out what the Christian once was, and it makes them something new such that even though they may still struggle with some of these sins, you can no longer say of them, this is what they are. In just a moment, I want to walk through these points together and discuss both how they cancel out the Christian's previous status in in spite of the fact that they may still struggle with sin. And I'll try to explain as well how each of these three states provide us with valuable insight regarding how we're supposed to interact with the world. But before we do that, I would just have you observe that these three states are affected by two instruments both of which occur at the end of verse 11 the first instrument is the name of Jesus Christ the Corinthians have been washed sanctified and justified in the name of Jesus Christ we'll touch on this point throughout but the main idea is that all three of these states occur under the authority of Jesus Christ and on the basis of his finished work on the cross Again, I'm going to try to touch on this as we go, but the idea is that Jesus is not only the one responsible for this transformation, but it's also a transformation that places a person in Christ. So just like Peter heals the lame man in Acts 3, quote, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, meaning that Jesus is the one who is ultimately responsible for that man's healing, not Peter. So also are we washed, sanctified, and justified. In the name of Jesus Christ and not only this but just as when we are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ uh, do we declare our identification with Christ such that we begin to live under the authority of Christ so also do these three actions point to the new identity that we've received through this transforming work if we're talking about new identities this is really the summary point not only Is Christ responsible for this transformation? But the result is that through this transformation, we have become followers of Christ. Or to put the matter rather simply, we have become Christians, right? That's more or less what the term Christian means. It means a person is a follower of Christ. They bear the name of Christ. The second instrument is the spirit of our God. Again, we'll touch on this some more as we go, but the idea is that not only is Jesus responsible for this transformation, but it's a transformation that's affected by the Holy Spirit. And if you wonder what I may mean here, you can sort of think of it like what happens when an FBI agent uh, makes an arrest. Uh, The FBI agent is the one who makes the arrest. They're directly responsible for it. And yet they do so under the authority of the President of the United States. That's sort of like what's going on here. The Holy Spirit is the one doing the arresting. He's the one doing the transformation, but he does so in the name of Jesus Christ. The significance of this point is that it demonstrates that this is a transformation for which God is entirely responsible, right? He's done it. He's the one who's changed us, and this matters since, as Paul states in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, this isn't some kind of temporary transformation that's occurred. No, this is permanent. When Paul says, In such were some of you, he means it. There's no going back here. This is what God has done in the Christian permanently. And so now the Christian needs to live in conformity with these realities. So then, that all being said, what has God done in the Christian? Here are three actions or states that Paul wants the Christian to remember. The first one is this. Number one, remember that you are washed. You are washed in the name of Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We hear this word washed, and I think most of us are inclined to think that Paul is talking about the notion of forgiveness when he says this. This is how... We sometimes think of forgiveness, and we think of it in terms of cleansing or purification from sin. You think of the believer entering the waters of baptism, for instance, and this is how we sometimes describe it. It's a picture of our sins being washed away. In fact, that's how this exact word, apaluo is used in Acts 22.16. Ananias speaks to the recently converted Paul, and he says, And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away, apeluo your sins, calling on his name. And of course, there you see not only this idea of washing, but even a washing in the name of Jesus. This might seem to imply that this is the same idea that Paul is talking about here. However, I don't think that's the picture that Paul has in mind in this passage. Uh, When Paul talks about washing, uh, very often he tends to refer to it as a cleansing from active participation in sin. For example, in Ephesians 5, uh, he speaks of Christ sanctifying his bride, the church, quote, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Likewise, in Titus 3.5, he observes that God, quote, saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. He continues in verses 6 through 7 saying, Whom He poured out on us richly, listen to this, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There you see some additional elements come out that seem to mirror what we find here in 1 Corinthians 6. There's this washing that's performed by the Spirit, right, through Jesus Christ, which results in our justification. This is what I think Paul is referring to here. You go back to the Old Testament, and this is the way that God referred to the act of regeneration in the book of Ezekiel, as a cleansing of the heart. And it's what Jesus refers to in John 3, 5, when he says, think about this, that one must be born of water and the Spirit to enter the kingdom of heaven, which is what we're talking about here in 1 Corinthians 6, right? Those who enter the kingdom of heaven. The very first thing that must happen to a person before they can enter in the kingdom, the very thing that makes their faith in Jesus Christ possible, is the act of regeneration. It's only when the Holy Spirit transforms the heart of the sinner such that they stop rejecting and suppressing the truth of God and instead begin to embrace God that they can hear the good news of the gospel and believe. Of course, this idea has already played a crucial role in Paul's thinking earlier in this book. Back in chapters 1 through 2, he speaks of the word of the cross being foolish to the natural man. And he explains, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. He even explains that This is why the Corinthians seem to have so much trouble accepting his teaching. It's because although they do have the Spirit of God, they're still thinking and acting like people of the flesh. And Paul is imparting spiritual truth to those who are spiritual. And the problem is that far from what they think, the Corinthians are actually not very spiritual people. I think this is what Paul is talking about here. He's reminding them. You're not natural people anymore. At one time, you were strictly natural men and women, but then you were washed. Then you were made new. Then you were born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you you remember what that transformation was like, Christian? When that happened to you? I have to be a little careful here because I know the experience of regeneration isn't the same for everyone. In my experience, it seems like those who have been in the church for some time when they're regenerated or who maybe grew up in Christian homes, for them the act of regeneration can be so subtle as to be almost imperceptible. There's no radical transformation in their life when it happens because in terms of their lifestyle, they were already living something that kind of approximated Christianity. They did Christian things. They affirmed Christian truths. They just weren't alive to these things. And so when they believe, it can feel closer to walking up a step, right, than ascending a mountain. In fact, for many, the change is so slight that they even have trouble pinpointing when it happened. Now, it's not like they don't realize that a change has happened. They do. They just can look back and, I mean, they can see that something's different about them, but they don't know when or in response to what it took place. I'll tell you, though, not for me. For me, uh, the change was sudden and it was radical. And do you know what I remember the most about that change? It was how much sense the Bible suddenly seemed to make. I mean, I I can remember reading the Bible before, and not only did it feel confusing, uh, but I didn't really like it. And I don't just mean that in the sense that I thought it was boring. No, like I didn't really like it. Even those parts I did understand sort of repulsed me. It didn't seem practical. But then I believed, and, and not only did it seem like I suddenly could understand the Scripture far, far better than I ever could before. Even more than this, what it had to say made sense. Like, I I was saved during my last month of college, and all I could remember going through my English classes was how much confusion there seemed to be about everything. What was right, what was wrong, what was true, what was untrue. There was no way of knowing. Everything seemed to be filled with so much uncertainty. And then by faith, I started to believe in the scriptures. And I found that what it had to say made sense. For example, something as simple, you may think of me kind of a philosophy nerd or something when I say this, but something as simple as how can we know anything at all? Before I believed, that troubled me. I didn't have an answer to that question because every human being was limited by their own perspectives. And yet I tended to live like there was such a thing as truth. We all do. And the scriptures explained this. It told me that not only is there objective truth, but it can be known. Because God, who is not limited by his own perspective, God, who is omnipresent and omniscient, and in fact knows all things, he discloses truth to mankind. Suddenly, right there, was an answer to something I had been struggling with for so long. And that was really just the tip of the iceberg. All of a sudden, I couldn't get enough of the Bible. In fact, I couldn't get enough of learning. My whole way through school, I'd only studied just to earn a grade. I didn't really care about the things I studied. I just did it because I had to. And now there was this truth. And this truth that made sense of the world. And I couldn't get enough. I spent my free time listening to sermons or reading theological books or talking to other Christians about God because this mattered to me. Maybe your conversion experience was similar. Maybe it wasn't. But but do you know what kind of an effect it had on me with respect to the world in particular once I started to see and understand the Scripture? It made me incredibly bold. You see, before I was born again, I would sometimes do Christian stuff, but I would try to hide it. For example, I can remember one instance very distinctly pulling out my Bible at the student union in college and hoping that no one would see me or come up and talk to me about it. And that's because the truth was that I was ashamed to be a Christian. There was this doubt in me that almost made me want to apologize or explain to other people why I was a Christian so they wouldn't reject me. In short, I wanted to be liked by the world, esteemed by the world, respected by the world. And in retrospect, I can understand why. It was because I thought they were right. I believed that they were the wise ones, that they had the truth. And so in order for me to feel good about my faith, it had to have their approval. But after my heart was changed, so I stopped rejecting the Scriptures, and as I began to finally see the wisdom of the Scriptures as a result, all of that changed overnight. Suddenly, I was the one on offense. I was going up and starting spiritual conversations with people, and and when people spoke ill about Christianity, I would eagerly stand up and defend the faith. And why? Well, it was because I wasn't intimidated anymore. I had come to believe, to truly believe, we're not the ones who are backwards. They are. We're not the ignorant ones. They are. It's funny, I even recall how it changed my perspective on Christian art. Uh, Before I was born again, I was embarrassed by Christian artists who tried to copy the artistic styles of the world, not necessarily because I thought they were wrong, but typically because they were pretty bad at it. It was embarrassing to watch. Christian grunge trying to sound like Pearl Jam. Christian rappers trying to come off hard and talk like they were Tupac. Honestly, I'm still embarrassed whenever I encounter this stuff. But I remember after I became born again, the embarrassment was accompanied by a new feeling. And that was disappointment and even disgust. I remember thinking to myself, what are you doing copying the world? Don't you realize we have the truth? We shouldn't be copying them. They should be copying us. We need to create our own art forms, not mirror theirs. And listen, I know that sounds arrogant, but honestly, that's kind of my point. And I think that's partly Paul's point here as well. We do actually know more than the world, don't we? At least more of spiritual substance. I'm not saying we're all suddenly rocket scientists or something like that, but when it comes to matters of Spiritual substance, we have the Word of God, not them. We have the Spirit of God, not them. And this means that when it comes to spiritual matters, we do actually know more than them. So we shouldn't be seeking out their opinion on these types of issues. Rather, they should be seeking ours. This was Paul's whole point or back earlier in chapter 6, wasn't it? The Corinthians are seeking input from the secular courts. And Paul is baffled by this. He's appalled. It doesn't make any sense. He's going, wait a second. Don't you remember? You're going to judge angels. What are you going to the world for? Do you mean to tell me that there's absolutely no one among you who can handle these kinds of issues? It just doesn't compute for him. Friends, so much of the time we have trouble Properly applying our faith, not because it's difficult to think through the implications of our doctrine, but because we're looking over our shoulder at the world wondering what they think, seeking their approval. And when this happens, the thing you need to remember is that you've been washed. You've been washed. You once lived in ignorance, but now you've been given a new mind in Christ. There is a better way of thinking a better way of life as paul states in in colossians 2:3 in christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and so you don't shrink back and fall into your former manner of thinking instead you grow into this truth you you grow into this new way of thinking all in all i think the sentiment described in this point is captured quite well by the apostle paul in ephesians 4:17 through 24 we read this passage in our scripture reading this morning. But look, listen again to it. There he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They become callous and given themselves up to sensuality. Does it sound familiar? Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you've heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put off or put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. No longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Instead, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put off the old self. Put on the new self. In short, grow into what you are. This is Paul's point right here. And this is what you need to remember as you engage with the world. You were washed. You have a new way of thinking now, a new set of desires even, a new kind of life. So this is the first state Paul exhorts us to remember here. You were washed. Let's look now at the second, which is, you were sanctified. You were sanctified. I try to point this out fairly frequently. In fact, uh, we covered this just a few weeks back, but the term sanctify means to make holy, or even more specifically, to set apart. This is what it really means to be holy. It means to be distinct or different, and so this is what it means to be Sanctified or made holy, it means to be set apart. Biblically speaking, there are two ways to refer to this concept. There's what theologians call positional sanctification. That's the one-time act whereby God essentially declares when the Christian believes, this one has been set apart for special service to me. They are holy unto me. And then there's progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification is the process whereby progressively, over time, God conforms the Christian to this calling. So like God sets the Christian aside for a particular purpose, for a particular calling, but they don't yet measure up to this calling. They're not yet competent for it, you could say. And so over time, God makes them competent for it. If you can't tell, this all plays into the simile. Eustace et peccator concept that I talked about last week. The Christian is at one time a saint, meaning they are holy, and yet they are also at the same time a sinner. Listen, that's not just true in terms of our justification, which we're going to discuss in a moment. That's true of their sanctification as well. They are already sanctified. They are already set apart for special service to God. And yet at the same time, They tend to serve their own selfish, sinful desires as well. It's only over time that the Christian is actually conformed to serve God with their whole heart. In a sense, it's only over time that they actually become what they already are. I would imagine you can already figure out in what sense I think Paul is using this word here. Again, when he says, such were some of you. He's definitely not intending to say that they don't still struggle with the sins listed in verses 9 and 10, since it was actually the Corinthians' struggle with these very sins that prompted him to write this passage, right? Again, in verse 8, they're defrauding one another. And Paul is going, wait a second, don't you realize the greedy and swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God? So I think it's pretty clear that it's positional sanctification that Paul is talking about here. He's reminding the Corinthians, you once were these people, but then then God sets you apart. So now become what you are. Grow into what God has made you to be. This is another factor that hinders our ability to properly engage with the world in a way that maintains our witness. We tend to forget that in Christ, We have been sanctified in the name of Christ and by the Spirit of God. To be sanctified in the name of Christ, that of course means that we have been set apart for special service to Jesus Christ. And to be sanctified by the Spirit of God, this means that it was through this act of regeneration, through this making uh, alive unto faith in Jesus Christ, that we have been set apart for this purpose. Basically, biblically speaking, faith isn't mere mental assent to the lordship of Jesus Christ, but a joyful embracing of that reality. The sinner repents of their rebellion against God, which they do uh, by voluntarily submitting to the lordship of his chosen king. And for the Christian, that happens at the point of faith when the Spirit of God transforms the heart of the sinner, washes them so that they begin to actually delight in the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. This means that internally, every Christian has been sanctified unto Jesus Christ by the Spirit through faith. To quote Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 14-15, he says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And to quote Paul again, this time in Romans 7, 2 through 6, he says, A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. He says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. To him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. He says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The Scriptures tell us quite clearly that the Christian has been set apart by the Spirit of God for service unto Jesus Christ. The problem that many Christians encounter is that they forget this reality. It's just like what we talked about last week with the quote-unquote gay Christian. They attach these other adjectives out in front of their identity in Christ, which in turn often tend to supersede and override this identity in their minds. They think of themselves in terms of their career, or their political affiliation, or even their relationships. They you know, think their primary identity is wrapped up in their role as a father or a mother or something like that. In their minds, they're a, a jokey first, or a Republican, or an office manager. Their identity is shaped by what they are in this world more than what they are and even will be in Christ. Or even worse, they forget about this aspect of their identity entirely, meaning they don't even think of terms of, you know, I'm a I'm a jokey who happens to be a Christian. Instead, it's just, I'm a jokey, period. There's nothing else attached to it that follows that. I'm an office manager or a doctor or something like that. There's no, I'm this and a Christian. Instead, they really think of themselves only in light of these other labels that they attach to themselves. When the reality is that it's, their identity in Christ, right, that's supposed to supersede every other identification. The result is that they are not holy. Mostly because they don't use this new mind that they've received in the Spirit long enough to be conformed to this new identity. I mean, think about it. You look at what Paul is doing here in this passage. And really, it's not super complicated. He's just taking basic doctrinal truths, key aspects of what the Christian has become through Christ, and he's using that to discern how the Christian is supposed to respond to an assortment of different issues. I mean, just take this notion of of sanctification. The Christian has already been sanctified, set apart in the name of Jesus Christ. What does that mean practically? Well, it means that the Christian should separate from those who claim to be in Christ are not actively attempting to conform to this reality again the Corinthians should separate from the incestuous man in chapter 5 why? I think you discover part of the answer here because the sexually immoral shall not inherit the kingdom of God and because while they weren't once were this way in Christ they are this way no longer again they've been washed they've been sanctified now this doesn't necessarily mean that they need to separate themselves from the world also again why not? Well, because again, they are already sanctified in Christ. It's like I explained back in chapter 5. God won't discipline the church for the sins of the world because they're not joined to the world in the same way that they're joined to their brothers and sisters in Christ. Christians have been sanctified, set apart in Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ, right? And so they're now distinct from the world even while they live in the world. They're already distinct from the world, even as they live in the world. So God isn't going to assign the world's sins to them. He's not going to view them as a group. No, they've been sanctified. And yet at the same time, this engagement with the world doesn't mean that they should therefore go and submit their grievances to the world. Why not? Well, I think you can say it's not only because they've been washed. Meaning not only is this because they've received a superior set of wisdom in Jesus Christ, But I think it's fair to say as well, it's because they've been sanctified, right? They've been set apart from the world in order to render service to God. They're a subculture here. And now they need to be thinking in terms of how their grievances, right? They, you know, uh, reflect the gospel. And they need to have these disputes settled in a way that God is pleased with. Basically, they need to render judgments that are consistent with God's standards of right and wrong. And that's not something they're going to find in the world. Are you tracking with me here? This is all just a matter of taking this idea of sanctification, just that idea of sanctification, to its logical conclusions. But the thing is, it requires first seeing oneself as living in service to Christ above everything else, above every other label or identity that we might attach to ourselves. And then making an active effort to live in light of that calling before you're going to get there. This is why it's so, so important for us to remember this point, that we have been sanctified. Because without it, listen guys, we're not going to have either the situational awareness or the motivation to do what it takes to live distinctly from the world. There's one final state that Paul wants you to remember here this morning. And that's the fact that you were justified. You once were a sinner, just like everyone else. But then you were justified. Already, I imagine you might be saying to yourself, uh, Ryan, I think you said that wrong. Um, you said I was a sinner. Uh, no, I think you mean I am a sinner. But if you're a Christian, then what you need to understand is that in God's eyes, you're not this is the beauty of the Gospel. What the Gospel proclaims is that in God's eyes, you are dikaios, righteous in the Greek. Or as it's stated here, dikaios, justified or declared righteous. This happens through the Christian's union with Christ, When the Christian believes in the name of Jesus Christ through the Spirit of God, they are so joined to Jesus Christ such that their sin is transferred to Him, which He pays for at the cross, and all His righteousness is in turn transferred to them. And the result is that when God looks at the Christian, no matter how much sin they've had in their life in the past, or how much they're continuing to wrestle with in the present, He sees them as a sinner no longer. Instead, they are dikaios, just. He sees them as if they performed the perfect righteousness of Christ. They are right now, presently, full, fully and completely righteous in his sight. How this notion should transform the way we interact with the world, I think we begin to see in the very next passage when Paul writes in verse 12 All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. I think you see it again in verses 19 through 20 when he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. (laughs) You see, the truth is, when it comes to sin, the world isn't always the problem, is it? I know that's kind of how I'm presenting it today, especially under this first point of washing. I'm acting as if there's this pressure from the world to conform to its standard of right and wrong. And so it can make it seem like the world is at fault for our sin. they've, They've pressured us into doing it. But the truth is, it doesn't really work like that. Most of the time, the world isn't actually pressuring us into doing anything, it's just living out its convictions. The people around us are living in unrepentant sin, and the reason is because they haven't been washed. They haven't been sanctified in the name of of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. They're not trying to convert us. They're just doing what unregenerate people do. And our problem is that we still like it. Don't get me wrong. Yes, we have been washed. There is this new conviction that we have about Jesus Christ and these new desires that come along with this conviction that on the one hand drives us away from our sin. We loathe it, we hate it, right? We mourn over it, as Paul would say. And yet at the same time, there's a part of us that still enjoys it too. The problem isn't the world. They're not dragging us into their way of life. No, we're going into it voluntarily. What can happen in this moment is we can try to justify our behavior with this notion of forgiveness, this notion of justification. And we can start to tell ourselves, well, it's really not such a big deal. After all, the grace of God is sufficient to cover all my sin, right? So it doesn't really matter what I do here. This seems to be how the Corinthians were thinking back in chapter 5, as they boasted in the incest of one of their members, thinking of themselves untouchable thinking that God would no longer rebuke them for this sin now that they were in Christ Jesus. This is probably what they mean in verse 12 as well when they say, all things are lawful for me. They're taking the grace of God and interpreting it as a kind of freedom to act as they please without restraint. We do this as well. and Whenever we do this, we not only freely adopt the standards and practices of the world without needing to be pressured by the world, But we forget the significance and the purpose of our justification. Paul explains all this in Romans 6. He does it in language that mirrors what we find here in 1 Corinthians 6. And he actually explains it in response to those who would say, Well, if God has forgiven all our sin, if we don't need to be righteous in order to earn our salvation, if we are justified, simply on the basis of Christ's righteousness through our union with Him which is Paul's point in Romans 5 by the way then why would we even bother with trying to be holy why not just live it up and enjoy our sin Paul explains Romans 6 1-11 he says what shall we say then are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means how can we who die to sin still live in it And alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's a lot that Paul covers in that passage, but the basic translation of it is this. Christ died to free us from our bondage to sin. Like we are justified, we are justified so that we would be freed from our enslavement to sin. That's literally what Paul says in verses 6 and 7. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin." Now, there are some really interesting elements about how this all works, some of which I might try to get into next week, as Paul talks about the significance of the resurrection with respect to the practice of sexual immorality. But big picture, the idea, is that Christ justifies us. He pays the penalty for our sins on our behalf so that we might be freed from our enslavement to sin. If I could return to the subject that we started with this morning, and that's the nation of Israel. One of the things that we find in the Old Testament is that even as they're being redeemed from their enslavement in Egypt, even after they've gone through the ten plagues, even after they've experienced the Passover and have been delivered by God with an outstretched arm. There's this longing that they experience to go back to Egypt. This longing to return to slavery. To which God says, Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Or as he says in Leviticus 11.45, I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Whenever we encounter this temptation to go back into our former manner of life and to live like the world, not because the world pressures us, but because we want to, this is one of the things we must remember. We have been justified. To use the language that we'll encounter in verses 19 and 20, we have been bought with the blood of Christ. We have been declared holy in the name of Christ and transformed into a temple for the Holy Spirit. And God has done this not so that we can return to our former manner of life, but so that we can walk in newness of life. And so to continue to quote Paul, this time from verses 12 and 14 of Romans 6, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as sin or uh, members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of, for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. <laughs> Friends, this is the proper application of grace, of justification. Not to think that we have license to sin on account of, of the grace that's been offered to us in Christ, but that we've been freed from it. We'll see, this is what liberty means for Paul. This is what the Corinthians have misinterpreted. They've interpreted Paul's talk of liberty as meaning freedom to sin. Paul understands liberty means freedom from sin. At the end of last week's sermon, I asked you to spend time this week asking yourself, where is my conduct inconsistent with my identity uh, in Christ? And if you recall, I said there are uh, two ways you can ask that question. On the one hand, you may already be aware of some instances where your conduct doesn't align with who you are in Christ. And I said that in these instances, this passage can challenge you to live in a more consistent manner. It can encourage you to put away (coughs) this uh, former manner of life and fully embrace what you've become in Jesus Christ, uh, to become what you already are. However, I also said that this question could be asked with the intent of exploring what elements of your life you think are already in line with this new identity but which actually aren't. And that can seem rather tricky to discern where your life is not in lockstep with who you are in Christ. Like the Corinthians, I think we can all find ourselves wondering about how this works practically. But the answer to these questions really aren't so hard to figure out in the end so long as you do one thing And that's remember. Remember what you've become in Christ by the power of the Spirit. Remember that you've been washed. Remember that you've been sanctified. Remember that you've been justified. Remember, Christian, that such were some of you, but that in Christ you have become new. Because if you can remember these truths, if you can just remember what you are and think on these things, then you'll be able to discern what to do and remain distinct let's pray